The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. So my name is Janie, and I'm one of the people on staff here. Welcome to the Inn. Excited that you're all here tonight, and welcome to anyone who's new, and welcome to anyone who's been here many, many times. Still very glad that everybody's here. Um, one thing that I want to let you guys know about, you heard about a bunch of opportunities earlier from Becca and Taylor, but one thing that we do, I do every week that I want to invite you to is something called Listening Group. Um, listening Group, I do it every Wednesday, 4.30 to 5, and a lot of people are like, what are you going to listen to? Records? No. Um, listening group is just a half hour of prayer. And it's you don't have to talk to anybody. It's just a time to come and sit and be quiet for half an hour and listen to God. And um, I do a guided prayer time. So it's just right across the street on the corner, um, the house, a house that we own. There's a bookstore on the second floor, but the main floor, there's some prayer rooms that we have in there. And you're welcome to come and just kind of Listen to God. That's really kind of the point of listening group. So wanted to let you guys know about that opportunity. It's open to anybody if you want to come every Wednesday at 4.30. All right, so it's January 15th, right? That means that we're two weeks into our New Year's resolutions. Did any of you guys make New Year's resolutions? Maybe a handful, right? What what kinds of resolutions did you guys make? Anybody? Savings program. All right. Saving some funds. Nice thinking. Anything else? What What are other resolutions? Yeah. Blessings box. Blessings box. So you write blessings. And then you put them in the blessings box. All right. Any other resolutions that you guys have? Um, one that I think a lot of people have that's pretty common is working out more, right? That's the resolution that a lot of people have. I'm going to exercise more. Um, this the December, about a month ago, I was at my gym, and I was working out, and, I, and there was a notice on the locker room door that said, our gym will be closing on December 28th. For good. Dunzo. No more gym. I was like, what? Like, that's three days before I would be enacting a new workout program. What am I supposed to do? So I'm trying to figure out, should I join another gym? What, sh- what should I do to work out? And so I decided to go back to an old workout regimen that I've done in the past, and it's called P90X. The X is for extreme, yeah? That's Tony Horton. He is the leader of P90X. And it's, it is pretty intense. It's a pretty extreme workout program. There's six DVDs that you do at home on your own. But it was interesting because I was doing some P90X, and while I was working out, I started thinking about Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's right. P90X always makes me think about Jesus, makes me think about my faith. And you're thinking, what? Like, was Jesus ripped or something? Maybe. I don't know. But the reason is because there's a specific exercise that you do in P90X that always reminds me of my faith. And I want you guys to try it out. Yeah! All right. So everybody stand up. We're going to do some P90X. All right, all right, we're going to have to quiet down so you can hear what Tony has to say. Um, 80-20, oh, here he goes, ready? This is the 80-20 speed squat. The world-famous Debbie Sievers showed me these. Debbie, a tribute to you. We'll get Thanks the view for the extra. In a sec. 
We have them. There we go. It's called the 80-20 Debbie Siebers Speed Squats. Okay. We're going to get airborne. I'm falling over. We're going to get airborne periodically. You can get airborne or not. It's up to you. Here we go. Here we go. 80% of the weight here. 80% on one 20 leg. 20 on the toes. 20% on the other Are leg. Are you ready to get busy? Yeah. 30 times. Here we go. Let's go. All right. Speed squat. Come on, you guys. And five, and six, and seven. All right. I'm not going to tell you when. No. All right, you can stop it, Caitlin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead and take a seat. Are you jacked? Are you jacked? Are you jacked to the extreme P90X? All right, every time I do 80-20 speed squats, right? 80% of your weight on one leg, 20% on the other leg. And Tony tells you to go faster and faster, up and down. And then you add jumps. I mean, it's crazy. But whenever I do 80-20 speed squats, I think about Jesus. Because what I think about is, man, you know what? This is the picture of my faith. When it comes to my faith, I am 80% in. I am 80% in with Jesus. But there's still it's 20%. I don't really know if I'm all in, right? So I'm, I'm happy to be 80%, but I don't know if I'm all in. Every time I do the 80-20 Debbie Sievers speed squat, I'm reminded of being all in. That's what we're looking at in Philippians. Ryan got us started last, last week looking at... Um, Chapter 1 of Philippians, and what we want to look at is what does it mean to be all in with Christ? What does that look like? To not be 80-20, but to be all in. Pray with me as we get started. God, I thank you that you are all in with us, and I pray that we would know how to be all in with you. Pray that you would be with us here tonight, God. Teach us from your word. Teach us from what Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. Help us learn what it is that you want us to see. In your holy name, amen. Last week we got started with chapter one, and we saw how this book, which is a letter written from Paul to this church that he helped start in the city of Philippi. Um, and we have a map actually of where Philippi is. It's part of the Roman Empire. You can see it. It's up there on, is that the Aegean Sea? Something. Um, so it's part of the Roman Empire, so that's where Philippi is. Um, Paul helped start that church. He writes them a letter. And really, it's kind of like a love letter. It's, a, it's probably the most personal of all the letters that Paul wrote, because he's in a great relationship with the, the people in this church. And as we get started looking at chapter 2, there's three things I want to point out. First of all, Paul actually wrote this letter from prison. When the Christian movement got started, the Romans blamed the Christians for everything. So Paul got tossed in prison, and he's incarcerated. He's not in an orange jumpsuit, but he's definitely in chains. And he is writing this letter full of joy and love, even though he's in this, these pretty desperate circumstances. So Paul writes from prison. The second thing to note is that Paul wrote this letter to a church. Whenever we read scripture, we open it up and we say, what is, God gonna, what is God saying to me? And in reality, a lot of times it's actually written to a community. So this letter was written to a community. It's fitting that we're reading it together this month. The third thing I would say about Philippians, um, and this is my opinion, but I would say about Philippians in general, but chapter 2 in particular, if you were left with only this chapter in the Bible, if this page were ripped out of your Bible, 
you would have everything that you needed to know about the gospel. Everything you would need to know is in chapter 2. Jesus' death on the cross, what it means to follow him, what it means to be in community. So it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's right up there. It ranks really high. I return to it again and again when I'm like, I don't know what to read. And I refer to it as the instruction manual. Have you guys ever been putting something together, rip into it, and you don't bother looking at the instruction manual? Be honest, whenever you put together Swedish furniture, that's what you do, right? You don't look at the instructions, and then you get halfway into it, and you're like, wait a sec, there's definitely not enough screws every time. You're like, wait, how does... And then you have to go back to the instruction manual. Or last month, my computer downloaded the new version of iTunes. Have you guys tried to use that? Oh my gosh! I'm trying to find my podcasts and my playlists. And when I first opened it up, I was like, there was a question, do you want a tutorial? And using, no tutorial, come on. And now I can't even use it anymore. Instruction manuals are really important. So I would title, if I were giving this to a publisher, I would title chapter two, Christian Instruction Manual, colon, subtitle, How to Be All In with Your Faith. That's what I think chapter 2 gives us. So those are the things I want you to know as we open up chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Um, let's take a look. Therefore, I don't know if Ryan said this before, but he likes to say, whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. <laughs> Actually, Ryan would say, what's the therefore? Therefore! Um, So, really what he's doing is Paul's referring to what he's already talked about in chapter 1. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In some ways, I could just be like, that's it. That's that's the message right there. What Paul is is saying to them is... um, He wants them to remember the gospel that brought them together. So he uses a bunch of the words that he used in chapter 1, like joy, common sharing, love, tenderness, compassion, like-minded, unity. He's not doubting the quality of the faith of of these people that he knows and he helped lead to Christ, but he's affirming them, and he's actually calling them to more. He's calling them to the next step in spiritual maturity. Put more simply, I think he's saying, if you're going to be all in with Christ, you need to check your attitude. Or as my mom would have said when I was a kid, check your attitude, young lady. In the original Greek, the only technical verb in this section of verses, this is really interesting, the only technical verb is what he says in verse 2, make my joy complete. I find that fascinating that Paul is referring to the lives that they live with one another having an impact on him, on his joy. Not that they should behave in a particular way to please Paul, but the fact whether they love each other, whether they put one another first, or the fact that they're in conflict or tension all the time, that's going to have an impact on him. Now, how often do we think about that? 
We're busy pursuing our own individual faith journey. We're listening to worship music on our iPod. We're writing in our individual journal, getting to know God, going to the faith activities that's going to grow us. But do I ever consider that the pursuit of my faith has a tremendous impact on the life of those around me? How I choose to live my life, what I choose to do, what I choose to say, actually affects everyone else. Whether or not I show up to my core group, that does not just impact me. That impacts everyone else in my core group. Why, when you sign up for a core group or student leadership with University Ministries, what do we emphasize over everything else? Commitment. Because the commitment that you're making, we're concerned about your faith journey, we also want you to know that your faith journey impacts everyone else's faith journey as well. What happens when you're invested in a bunch of different groups, kind of, and you maybe will show up to all of them? Do you think about how that might impact the people that are at those groups? Or you say, yeah, I'll show up, I'll volunteer for this, I'll, I'll serve in this way, but you don't actually show up. What does that look like for the people that are there? Look again at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Look not only to your own interests. Paul was fighting against an individualism that he saw with these new Christians in Philippi. And I can't even imagine what Paul would think if he saw the rampant individualism that exists in our world. Not just in our culture, I think it's in our church too. I mean, I think that might be one of the biggest downfalls of American Christianity is it's about my faith journey, for my benefit, it's me and Jesus, right? We got it going on. What Paul refers to in these verses is where I think we fall short the most when it comes to our faith, when it comes to caring and thinking about other people. And your guy, you guys, right now, your life is defined by you, your college students. It's designed that way, right? You're supposed to be thinking about yourself. What am I going to do with my life? What's my major going to be? Career, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? Your schedule is basically yours to do with what you will, to be committed to the things that you want to be committed to and not show up for the things that you don't want to commit to. I was talking about this to the In Speaking team. We were talking about the reality of, of selfishness. And um, Peter Clinkenbeard, who's a sophomore here at UW, he put it this way, which I love. He says, it's not a question of whether or not we're selfish. I mean, because we are. It's really a matter of how much does our selfishness define who we are. We're worried about our own faith journey too much, if at all, too much to think about other people, their needs, their wants. How are we going to spend time thinking about what other people need as a Christian? Paul is calling the people of the Philippian church to something more than the individual pursuit of faith to actually be a community. It's one thing to pursue a personal spiritual growth, and it's a totally other thing to, as a community, look to be spiritually mature together, to know that my faith journey relies on your faith journey, and vice versa. That is spiritual maturity. That is following Jesus all in, both feet. When we're able to see it's not just about us, it's about our community. Um, a few, somebody get that? Uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Kenya, and um, I spent about five months in Kenya, 
And while I was there, I was there for the first couple weeks. Um, I was there for the first couple weeks, and I went to church. And the church was, the church service was really long, and the songs that we sang, all of them were in Swahili, and the sermon that they gave was in Swahili. So I went for a couple weeks, and then the, th- the third week, Pastor James, who took me to church, came up, and he, he was going to walk with me to church. And he comes to the door, and I say, oh, Pastor James, hi, I'm excited to go to church, but I don't really think I'm going to go. And I'm embarrassed that I said this, but I said, I just... I didn't get anything out of it. And he looks at me and he smiles with a smile that says, oh, you silly, selfish American. He says, Janie, I don't want you to go to church for you. I want you to go to church for everyone else. I want them to see that you're there worshiping alongside. And I thought, okay, I didn't really have a response. And so I went every week. I would go to church um, at this place where it was all in Swahili. And did I get something out of it? Well, not what I expected. I didn't gain some intellectual insight about my faith or this understanding of God. But what I did get was I worshipped God in a language that I didn't even understand, in a way that I probably will never worship God again in my life. I experienced joy, but it was because I had to actually show up and be present for the other people that are there as well. Now the question is, why be all in? Why is it good for me to consider other people? Because Janie, as you're talking about it, it sounds exhausting. I don't really know if I can be all in for other people. Let's look at the example of Paul. Paul is late in his ministry. He is in prison. And he has experienced hardship and opposition on all sides. And what does he say about his life and these other people's faith? He says it brings him so much joy. Paul's life is a witness to the fruit of a life lived in close relationship with God and a life that is lived concerned about the faith of other people. Paul knows joy. Paul knows love. He's all in with his faith. And that includes the other people that he's bringing with him. And he knows love and pure joy. He goes on in chapter 2, giving us further instruction in this instruction manual. It starts in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. So the practical question is, okay, what does that look like? Same attitude of mind of Christ Jesus. He's going to answer that for us in the following verses, but I think we also need to look back at verse 3. He says in verse 3, remember this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. In humility. When Paul is talking about the attitude of Christ Jesus, he is talking about humility. So let's look at, remember that as we start in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself. There's that word again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself. When Paul writes in verse 7, made himself nothing, the word in Greek is, it can be understood synonymous with poor. Christ was rich but became poor. He gave up everything to be a servant. And he came under all that we experience as human beings, including rejection to the point of death. Paul makes it clear that what Christ does, all the choices he makes are his own. He's not forced to do what he does, but he chooses to empty himself, to be humble. Think about that. The central event in our salvation is an act of humble service by Jesus. And then Paul says in verse 9 that God exalted him. Now, it might be easy to read that and be like, oh, well, he humbles himself, but Jesus comes out on top. Sure, as long as in the end I'm number one, I'll do it. Time me up. Last becomes first. Okay. But that's not fair. That's not a fair reading of the text. Paul makes clear Christ did what he did with no promise of reward. Christ's tomb was a cave, not a tunnel. He acted on our behalf without seeing the absolute outcome. And that is what God exalted. That's what Paul wants us to understand about humility, self-denying service for others with no claim of reward, no outcome for your benefit at the end. And that's grace. That's Jesus' grace for us, giving himself so completely with no regard for what might happen. It's mind-blowing. I can't even begin to think about that, the grace that Jesus offers, that Jesus provides in humbly offering himself. Maybe that's the point. About grace, theologian Karl Barth says, only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible can it truly be grace. Only when we know we can never understand the grace of what Jesus offered to us will we really know what grace is. Paul concludes these verses at the end by quoting Isaiah 45, saying, all of creation will bow before Jesus. And I think what he wants us to know is that there is nothing in the entire universe that is outside the reach of the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's how far the grace extends. This letter is about following Christ, Paul style, which is all in. It's about becoming so single-mindedly focused on following Christ that you can't help but think like Christ, act like Christ, feel like Christ, not just for your own benefit, but in humility for the sake of others. So what? What are the next steps? What's the, what, what do we do when it comes to humility? How do we act like Christ humbly? Because humility is kind of a, this nebulous thing, right? Because once you start pursuing being a humble person, the more you pursue it, the further away it gets. Once you comprehend, I'm humble, that means you're no longer humble, right? It's like picking up sand falls to your hands. Wait, oh. But humility does exist. It's a distinctly Christian virtue, but it does exist. Jim Collins, who does a lot of research on leadership, he wrote the book Good to Great. He says that one common characteristic, one link between all the great leaders that he's researched is humility. So maybe to understand humility, it would be good for us to think about the opposite. The opposite of humility would be 
pride. I think we can probably all understand that. When we're one foot in, we got one foot into our faith. When we're 80% in on our faith, what the 20% is resting on is our pride. Last quarter, Ryan talked about pride, and he said pride is not thinking too highly of yourself. It's thinking too frequently about yourself. That can be two ways. Arrogant pride, I'm fantastic. Why does everyone else not see how fantastic I am? Or it can be in the Christian realm as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of above that. I wasn't really challenged. I didn't get a lot out of it, kind of like me. And also there's pride that is thinking too lowly of myself, of yourself. Thinking that you're worthless, that you're nothing. Focusing on how much better everyone else is than you are. It's still pride. It's self-destroying pride instead of self-glorifying pride, but it's still pride. That's the one that I'm most guilty of. One of the great things about working in university ministries is I work with amazing people. But what I find myself doing, instead of thinking about how amazing they are, is I think about how much I lack in comparison to them. Because I'm never going to be as encouraging as Ryan is, as relatable as Sherms is, as wise as Annika is, as sweet as Kelsey is. Brian, well, I'm never going to have a good time as well as Brian does. Seriously, no one is better at celebrating the joy of the gospel than Brian Petermeyer. And our interns are creative and funny, and they're empathetic and loving and caring. But when I'm focusing on how I lack and how much better they are than I am, that's not humility. That's pride. In the, in the message translation of Philippians 2, Eugene Peterson says, Think of yourself the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to that status no matter what. He didn't have to control his status and what others thought about him. He let it go, and he wasn't anxious about what was going to come back. Humility is letting go of the need for recognition, reward, status, resting your case on both feet in God. Where are you? Where are you when it comes to pride? Do you think you're fantastic and you wonder why no one else notices? Or do you think that you're worthless? Think that you're not worth anything? A humble, a humble person knows, first of all, that God is God and that they are not, and they put their strength in him because, I mean, God is God. A humble person knows exactly who they are, no more, no less, and they don't need to control how other people see them. A humble person knows that every other person has the same value and worth that they do and that they have something to offer them. A humble person is not a doormat that allow others to walk all over them, but someone who knows who they are and what their weaknesses are and their strengths are and they don't make too much of either one. A humble person loves others simply because they want other people to be loved not because they want people to love them in return. A humble person desires to be who God created them to be, and they want other people to discover that for themselves as well. Paul wanted his friends to know humility was central to the Christian community that they had, 
And humility is central to our community as well. The instruction manual on what it looks like to be all in with Christ, it doesn't have a lot of rules and regulations, but it begins and ends with a heart that is transformed to the humble character of Christ. What would our community look like if we aim to be exactly who God created us to be? No more, no less. What would our community look like if we sought to put the needs of one another before our own? If we thought about other people's faith before we thought about our own? What would our community look like if we were all in in our relationship with Christ? It would be a community of unconditional love, of all-inclusive acceptance, of unfathomable joy. That's the community that Christ wants us to know. And that's the community we can have if we will be all in with our faith. God, we thank you that you are a God who, again, is all in with us. We thank you that you are a God who humbly came to earth, who humbly became a servant, and for our sakes, was willing to die on the cross so that we could know an unfathomable grace that allows us to be in community committed to you. God, we pray that you would demonstrate to us what that community looks like. Make us a people who are all in with you and with one another. In your holy name, amen.